0: Thank you, Lauren, and um, a, a thanks to everybody uh, in Vigil and J.B. Moore Society who put together a, a really interesting program and uh, have organized it very well here. Um, Lauren uh, indicated uh, that uh, I have a long association with Peter Vincent, so it's, it's a real privilege and honor for me to be able to welcome him back here in this role and, um, and to, to, to give the introduction. As uh, she indicated, he's a former student. He's a former colleague and co-worker and sometimes co-conspirator on various government uh, projects and, and uh, uh, plans, um, and, and a good friend. And uh, it's just really nice to have you uh, back in Charlottesville here. Um, let me give you a little bit of, of his background. Uh, he graduated from Berkeley, um, was bound for law school perhaps, but he didn't come here directly. He went for several years in the Peace Corps in Guatemala where he also uh, learned, or at least or perfected, or gained great fluency in, in Spanish, which has proved him, uh, valuable in the rest of his um, career. He came here to UVA in the class of 1995. Uh, among other things here, he served as editor-in-chief of Vigil, so another strong connection with this particular program right now. Um, he spent five years in private practice. Then, two years with a law firm, and then two years uh, in the general counsel 's office or the legal department at Bechtel, uh, obviously a major international firm um, at that point, I think he he kind of uh, finally moved back towards what I believe is was always his true vocation, and that is government service, public service uh, of various kinds. Um, he entered um, He he, he entered what was then INS and soon became ICE as a trial attorney in San Francisco Uh, and his skills and talents there um, quickly got him appointed to what was called the National Security litigation team to work on that subset of immigration issues that are often very sensitive and quite complex and in the course of working on that I believe he came to the attention of Maine justice as we called it in INS days Um, and uh, Uh, was uh, therefore appointed in 2006 as the judicial attache in our U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia, uh, a country with both uh, terrorism and insurgency and um, organized crime uh, problems. Um, He he worked there, he was essentially in that role, he was the representative of the Department of Justice on the diplomatic team in the embassy there. He worked on uh, judicial cooperation, on intelligence sharing, on various counterterrorism efforts, terrorist financing, drug trafficking issues. Uh, Especially, he spent a lot of time working on uh, extradition of various high-profile leaders in terrorist uh, organizations uh, from Colombia or in uh, criminal organizations there. Uh, That was not work for the faint-hearted. As you might imagine, uh, he became quite unpopular with some very powerful and violent people uh, during that time. But um, I, I've heard stories that Peter was undaunted. He continued to do his his regular running schedule. He's also a marathoner um, with bodyguards often, but uh, he, he kept uh, kept up um, that, that schedule. Uh, the next The next stage in his career, um, I had some role in, in helping to secure, um, early in the Obama administration, uh, in, in early 2009, we were looking for a new principal legal advisor at uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Uh, that's essentially general counsel. Most other agencies call it a general counsel uh, position, the number one lawyer there. Um, the, uh, I-, I consulted with uh, the incoming director of ICE, who happened to be a man named jo- John Morton, um, a good friend of both of ours, a uh, uh, member of the class of ninety four here uh, who had also taken my immigration class uh, and uh, we thought about it for a while and we realized, oh, you know maybe Peter Vincent could be persuaded uh, to come here and so we, we both worked on that, and he basically co reported to John Morton and to me um, during for at least for as long as, as I was there in, um, and John was there in, in the uh, uh, in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, Peter's a very skilled manager. He's also a very thoughtful lawyer and legal strategist. His contributions were enormous during that time. Uh, But uh, as has often been the case, I think, for Peter, just one tough job at a time is not enough. He was also interested in following out on some more of his international instincts, and uh, he served for a considerable period of time there also as the um, director, let me see if I've got this right, Uh, the director of the Office of International Affairs overseeing um, a lot of the international operations of ICE, including uh, essentially their diplomatic representation in 75 different offices, their attachés in 75 different offices around the world. So Peter carried those those major roles. Uh, Since 2015, uh, when he left the government, he has uh, been serving as general counsel of Thomson Reuters Special Services, LLC. But once again, one job wasn't enough. Uh, So he also has a role as Assistant Director General of BorderPoll, which is a consulting organization working on facilitating uh, international travel and making sure that it's safe and and does not pose uh, security risks. Uh, He's now also quite a sought-after voice uh, on television and in op-eds to comment on a variety of matters that are occurring now. In fact, uh, just today or or, or last night uh, he had uh, an appearance um, explaining and talking a lot about the uh, the the latest incidents in Britain. Um, So um, we have here um, to speak to us today someone with a very broad range of experience that ranges from the Peace Corps Uh, to Colombian extraditions, to ISIS top lawyer, um, to various roles in the private sector. I think no one is better equipped than Peter Vincent to deal with a complex topic like the one that he has assigned to himself today, one that spans both humanitarian traditions and um, security complexities and imperatives. So he's going to speak to us uh, on the topic of weathering the perfect storm, accommodating refugees while guarding against nefarious actors, and terrorism. Please join me in welcoming Peter Vincent back to the law school.
1: Thank you, David. That's very, very kind. It, it's interesting, as, as David mentioned, I spent quality time in war torn Guatemala dodging the death squads that were very interested in killing me and then additional significant time in Colombia, where the FARC was also interested in killing me. I've been to Afghanistan twice, and yet coming back to this law school, which I love, uh, I am still um, nervous that my dear friend and mentor, David Martin, on his home turf, is going to reach out in the tried-and-true yet horrific Socratic method and call on me. A real quick thanks to the J.B. Moore Society of International Law, the Virginia Journal of International Law, the Immigration Law Program, and the University of Virginia Law School Foundation. And a special thanks to Lauren Sandground, uh, Christine's son, uh, my good friend Jason Trujillo, and once again my my good friend, former boss, former uh, professor, and uh, constant mentor, David Martin. It is both an immense privilege and a daunting challenge to address the United States' current prospects. You would be forgiven for thinking that the forecast is grim. National leaders claim our country is in a state of dire peril. Some news channels and sensationalist websites describe nothing but acts of terror in far-flung places, report on thousands of men, women, and children fleeing horrific violence abroad, and play clips of people dying in places all over the world. This information is generally packaged with little to no substantive context and looped in a repetitive cycle. And as someone who regularly, as David said, appears in the media, I admit that I am an unwilling contributor to this dynamic. I am frequently called called upon to explain the meaning of a particular terrorist act or to address the heart-wrenching global refugee crisis. As a result, one television producer recently remarked to me, Peter, every time I see you and every time you walk into our studio, the temperature drops 17 degrees. What has emerged is an indistinct yet altogether frightening picture, a desperate dystopian world collapsing outside our shores. It is unsurprising then that Americans are increasingly disinterested in foreign intervention. A May 2016 Pew Research Center surveyed indicated 57 percent of Americans want other countries to deal, to deal with their own problems as best they can, and 41 percent believe that the United States is too involved in world problems. Just under half of the US public supports halting all immigration from areas where terrorist organizations are active, even if it means that refugees fleeing war and terrorism are denied entry and safe haven here. We stand at a crossroads. Do we continue as a force for democracy, global trade, and cultural heterogeneity, or do we seek to advance our own fortune at the rest of the world's expense? The choice appears stark, but make no mistake, the United States cannot withdraw from its relationships and commitments abroad without causing incalculable harm to itself and to its international allies and partners. For the first time in the post-war era, we are considering whether that damage is an acceptable price for the security of our nation. I maintain it is not. Turning away from international responsibilities would severely tarnish the United States' global reputation as well as its security. We should reject those who tell us we cannot both support and protect our fellow U.S. citizens while at the same time providing assistance and comfort to those in need around the world. The United States can guard against nefarious actors who might seek to exploit the global irregular migrant crisis while simultaneously providing safe haven to refugees and asylum seekers. Moreover, I contend that it is our collective, legal and moral and indeed uniquely American obligation to do so. The present calls to turn our focus back to the United States is often characterized as anti-globalization, but it is perhaps best understood as a form of isolationism the roots of which are as old as the republic itself. Isolationist sentiment among the public is a predictable reaction to any costly foreign undertaking, particularly when those undertakings could potentially result in the high profile loss of lives. Isolationism also appears along domestic crises, as experienced in the United States during the Great Depression. In every prominent bomb blast abroad or devastating event at home, we can see the seeds of an isolationist response. Today, our climate of isolationism and nationalism can be understood in part as a reaction to our recent foreign wars, global terrorism, and increased economic distress at home. But there is another powerful factor, one more difficult to assess. The influence of fear and the perception of uncertainty among those who oppose more immigration and resettling of refugees in the homeland. Put simply, those who experience high anxiety and trepidation about current affairs are more likely to exhibit isolationist tendencies. Unfortunately, as described, the standard American media diet includes large amounts of alarmist and fear-inducing triggers. These are challenging and perhaps in some ways thrilling times for journalists. The vast majority of us, as consumers of news, no longer rely on a daily newspaper and a nightly newscast to educate us on world affairs. We have a vast array of options across online news bureaus, radio, podcasts, television, blogs, news aggregators, and Twitter feeds, all of which can be curated to meet our pre-existing biases. This selection, in turn, is spread over the multitude of devices we employ every day, from our work laptops to personal smartphones, sometimes used simultaneously while we watch television and browse our favorite news websites. As information, including so-called fake news and alternative facts, proliferates around us, our attention itself becomes a commodity. Our interest becomes more than a collection of habits. It evolves into our self-perception. We differentiate and identify ourselves by the types of media we choose to receive, filtering our preferences to the top and left swiping away data that does not fit our worldview. And we do it dozens of times each and every day. This is the reality of the attention economy. Our browsing habits can now make or break a business's fortune. With so much information to manage, content providers know we are unlikely to finish a television show or an article. We might not even finish a headline. And so the media, not surprisingly, without the benefit of the subscription model that sustained them for decades, competes for our time alongside entertainment websites and online games. Many news organizations, with a number of courageous and notable exceptions, package the critical news of our day into salacious, dramatic, and exaggerated sound bites, disseminated in short bursts with minimal explanation or background. In their defense, those media organizations plausibly argue that they are merely giving us what we are asking for in terms of content. As such, it is not surprising that the chief goal of these news organizations and websites is no longer to merely inform but to share a story so controversial, universally intriguing, or emotionally resonant that it reaches the widest possible audience. Truth has become subservient to virality, and one of the strongest components of effective viral content is fear. We see this fear in coverage of every conceivable topic, but it is especially strong as it relates to immigrants and refugees. Consider just some of these statements all from mainstream news organizations. The movement of refugees will allow terrorists entry into almost every Western country. Or, the migrant crisis is an ISIS psychological weapon. Or, male Muslim refugees are going to be easily radicalized by ISIS. Or, Obama is letting hordes of dangerous illegals onto American streets. Or finally, flood of immigrant children, straining American schools and taxpayers. The use of fear to attract audiences is endemic and far-reaching. Pope Francis went so far as to call such reporting a form of terrorism. There are millions of people in this country today who fear refugees precisely because they have been told that they should be afraid. And due to the emergence of self-made filter bubbles, These people can go about their lives without being exposed to facts, statistics, and information that might persuade them otherwise. With this current context in mind, we should note that general opposition to refugees or large immigrant populations is not a new phenomenon. In January 1939, just months after Kristallnacht, 67% of respondents to a Gallup poll opposed resettling 10,000 European refugee children in the United States. Majorities of Americans have been against welcoming vulnerable populations, including Jews, Hungarians, Irish, Cubans, Vietnamese, Haitians, and others displaced by crises. Political groups, like the so-called know-nothings, created policy platforms around their antipathy to foreigners. They shared propaganda in the form of cartoons and pamphlets along local networks, similar to contemporary social media feeds. Disinformation stokes distrust, paranoia, and fear of the other, all key elements of isolationism. People driven by these fears will naturally be hostile to groups they perceive as threats. Beyond the general public, Academics and policymakers seeking a precedent for U.S. isolationism can point as far back as George Washington's administration, which avoided involvement in European affairs. In his farewell address, Washington implored the American people to avoid permanent alliances and to minimize our political ties to other countries, noting the young nation's detached and distant situation made such independence possible. Contemporary pro-isolationism thinkers have tried to preserve that notion of independence while defining the term more broadly. Dr. Eric Nordlinger described isolationism's strategic vision as one of quiet strength and national autonomy. At its core, isolationism ensures a lasting appeal by a reduction as seemingly seductive as it is obvious. Our focus should be on our own country, our own borders, and our own people, they argue. Yet that simple idea contains a number of crucial fallacies and significant questions. A robust foreign policy and security apparatus does not preclude adequate attention to domestic concerns. We necessarily have overseas commercial interests, many of which require protection from those who would do us harm. On the subject of foreign adversaries, the core goal of our intelligence community is to gather critical information that assists our policymakers and protects our country. How do they manage the complex diplomatic and logistical requirements of their mission if our goal is to avoid foreign activities and engagements? And what of academic institutions? which since their founding have enriched civilizations as intellectual sanctuaries, attracting powerful minds from all around the world. How do new ideas flourish in an environment that minimizes the value of foreign contributions? Some of the United States' most successful industries depend heavily upon foreign workers and immigrant families. For instance, more than 15% of Facebook employees were on H1B visas in 2016 and 83% of the finalists of the Intel Science Channels talent search are immigrants. Our companies, our academical villages, our marketplaces of ideas depend on healthy relationships with the international community. Isolationism supposes a reality in which strong and stable nations grow and thrive mostly independent of their neighbors. However, isolationist states rarely reap the rewards of global economic prosperity. Isolationism is not only a simplistic philosophy, it is also an inherently negative one. Bill Keller offered a sobering assessment of U.S. isolationism in 2013 when he wrote, Isolationism is not just aversion to war, which is an altogether healthy instinct. It is a broader reluctance to engage, to assert responsibility, to commit. Isolationism tends to be pessimistic. We, we will get it wrong, or we will make it worse, and amoral. It is none of our business unless it threatens us directly, and inward-looking. Foreign aid is a waste of money better spent at home. This sounds markedly different from Washington's call despite his aversion to permanent alliances, to cultivate peace and harmony with all, with the assistance of religion and morality. Yet isolationism requires profound moral choices with daunting implications. When we prioritize our country and our people, before long we descend into a debate about who or what counts as ours, which in turn can foster bigotry, xenophobia, and racial nationalism like the America First Committee, which was supported by luminaries of the day, including Charles Lindbergh, among others, in the mid-20th century. To be isolationist is to accept that the United States is unable or unlikely to contribute positively to global emergencies, or worse, to suggest that such positive contributions are unimportant to America's interests. But such theoretical questions detract from the central point, Blessings of geography aside, there is no detached and distant situation of U.S. diplomacy. One could reasonably argue that there never has been. There can be no detachment from the countless agreements and special relationships that have helped the United States develop into a world power. In today's geopolitical landscape, these connections are more important than ever. The first line of defense for the United States' is security should be overseas and not at our doorstep. Diplomacy has traditionally served this role along with intelligence gathering. And certainly there can be no distance when so many critical US assets, such as intellectual property and classified national security information, exist in non-physical space accessible by anyone with sufficiently powerful tools. This is another critical failure of isolationism. It fails to take into account the state and dimension of our borders. We are told that our nation's physical borders are not secured. Politicians appealing to nativist tendencies describe our borders as fragile or non-existent, as mere formalities that fail to keep out a deluge of drugs, terrorists, and criminals. Refugees fleeing war-torn regions are depicted as a great Trojan horse concealing terrorist masterminds and operatives. The solution, we are told, is stronger borders. We must build a wall, a wall tall and secure enough to protect us and keep out the legions of them. Such rhetoric, in addition to being incendiary and troubling, fundamentally misunderstands how borders work. As my previous boss and Virginia Law alumna Former Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano remarked, you show me a 50-foot wall, and I'll show you a 51-foot ladder at the border. The creation of borders is a philosophical exercise as much as it is a legal one. It is axiomatic that it is up to each and every nation to determine what its borders should mean and how they should operate. Most countries collaborate on security along their shared borders because stability and controlled migration is mutually beneficial. On the freer extreme, Europe's Schengen area was designed to have no permanent internal border control systems. The current border controls developed to address the unprecedented irregular migrant and refugee crisis are intended to be short-term measures only. Even in countries with more restrictions, borders are rarely solid lines where one way of life ends and another begins." Cultures blend and trade thrives around our border crossings, as anyone who has traveled to our southwest border can confirm. Throughout history, some countries have tried to wall off the outside world, but there are precious few success stories. From Hadrian's Wall to the Maginot Line, physical fortifications have never been effective means of border defense or of controlling long-term migration. Walls are, at best, temporary solutions to larger problems. No serious discussion about managing contemporary migration can end with walls. A wall does not ease suffering, and it does not remove the urge to migrate. In fact, walls can also worsen existing problems by driving the most desperate to riskier paths. We have already seen this in the United States along our border with Mexico. After border security was enhanced at major crossing points, Irregular border crossing deaths nearly doubled over five years, with more than 30% of deaths attributable to heart heat exposure. Even a wall that stretched from coast to coast, a situation border experts find unrealistic and improbable, if not impossible, would simply drive would-be irregular migrants to sea routes. It is futile to establish or augment borders strictly to repel our neighbors. Doing so only engenders hostility between bordering nations, which in turn diminishes the very security we seek to create. Moreover, walls alone do not make the end goal less desirable. The illegal dra- drug trade in the United States remains too tempting to ignore. According to a binational criminal proceeds study from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Mexican drug cartels alone Earn between 19 to 29 billion dollars each and every year from the United States. If a drug trafficker stands to gain millions of dollars by selling his or her poison in the United States, he or she will not be deterred by a barrier. Few groups are as resourceful, clever, and creative as transnational criminals looking to score a healthy profit. So long as U.S. citizens have an insatiable demand for cheap, high-potency drugs, there will be actors who endeavor to provide that supply by any means necessary. That same end goal remains just as attractive for those without criminal intent. For people fleeing war, violence, poverty, corruption, intolerance, and persecution, or seeking better economic and educational opportunities for themselves or their children, the promise of a free and fair society is a powerful allure. We pride ourselves as a country that attracts individuals from all other nations and walks of life. There is no way to make the United States seem less attractive without compromising our most cherished values. We must be proud of our reputation as one of the best countries on earth to live, work, and raise families, and recognize that this reputation will always make us an appealing place for immigrants around the world and we must continue to uphold our commitment to the principles of justice enshrined in the United States' richly deserved reputation for its dedication to the rule of law. There is a pervasive myth that individuals who arrive in the United States outside of native birth or conventional immigration have no rights. To the contrary, the United States has an indisputable legal responsibility to all people within its territorial boundaries. The United States is a signatory to the 1951 United Nations Refugee Convention and its 1967 Amendment. Under the terms of that treaty, signing parties agree to resettle refugees without discriminating on the basis of race or religion. All refugees have fundamental rights, including the right to work, educate their children, and receive legal assistance. While undocumented immigrants are not entitled to all of these benefits— it has been settled law now for more than 130 years that they enjoy the vast majority of constitutional protections expressly provided to US citizens including due process, equal protection, and freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. These basic rights which were anticipated by James Madison in his his assessment of the Bill of Rights before they were ultimately confirmed by the US Supreme Court in a series of landmark decisions should never be subject to a politician's whim, or the unthinking demands of a populist fervor. There can be no rational governance when we place our fears above our Constitution. The United States' legal obligations to the less fortunate within our borders and those seeking asylum here may be unambiguous, but our moral obligations may seem less clear. There is no one document memorializing, let alone codifying, America's morals. And we rarely agree on how to put our shared values into practice. However, the United States' foundation and history as a religious refuge created a precedent for offering asylum to the oppressed. And the Declaration of Independence described a series of American moral obligations even before, before our country was founded. The Declaration's clear commitment to equality, freedom, and inalienable rights suggests a desire to emulate a higher moral power. Perhaps this is what Washington had in mind when he spoke of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. And we hear hints of that justice when we read the words of Moses Satius, a synagogue warden in Rhode Island. In 1790, Satius thanked Washington for helping to create a government to which bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance, but generously affording to all liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. This is a powerful affirmation from a historically maligned minority group, and it is no surprise that Washington himself echoed those same words in his response. One wonders what Washington would think of in this current environment and whether or not he would approve of a United States that failed to provide life-saving assistance to refugees fleeing violence and persecution abroad. Liberty, equality, and freedom from persecution. The very tradition of venerating these values has made them part of the United States' moral framework. Our leaders, legislators, and activists evoked and continue to promote these values. Our children are taught from a young age that the United States believes in these things and that those beliefs make us unique in the history of the world. Our soldiers carry those beliefs with them onto the battlefield. Phil Clay, a U.S. Marine and author, described his understanding of American values as including a commitment to democracy, to liberty, to the rule of law, and to the self-evident equality of all men. That sense of equality, according to Clay, led to U.S. warfighters offering their own blood in transfusion for an insurgent who had just killed a U.S. Marine. Inalienable rights do not end at our borders, or exist solely as a privilege to be enjoyed by those blessed to hold U.S. citizenship. The United States, notwithstanding painful and inexcusable exceptions, has always strived to be better than its prejudices and has memorialized that core, those core values into the law as a reminder for when we fail to be guided by the better angels of our nature. Moral courage lies not only in our best moments, but our ability to acknowledge our worst ones. It is worth reflecting on instances when we did fail and how we as a nation responded. History reminds us that human motives and political forces remain largely the same no matter the era. For a possible parallel to our present situation, we should turn to 1942 when our great country witnessed a glimpse of the danger of a body politic ignited by fear. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, executive order 9066 directed the detention of blameless Japanese-Americans in internment camps throughout the western United States. More than 100,000 people, a majority of whom were citizens of the United States, were deprived of due process and forced from their homes as punishment for being potential enemies of the state. The detentions lasted just over four years, but it was more than four decades before the federal government offered a formal response In 1983, the Congressional Commission on Wartime Relocation and Interment of Civilians produced its final report. The commission concluded that the executive order was not driven by analysis of military conditions, but was instead a byproduct of race prejudice, war war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. Presidents Reagan, H.W. Bush, and Clinton all offered apologies on behalf of the U.S. government, as did Congress itself with the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. Among other actions, the legislation called for a public education fund to finance efforts to inform the public about the interment so as to prevent the recurrence of any similar event. The former internment camps are now federally protected historic sites operated by the National Park Service as reminders of an extraordinary national shame to be thoroughly understood, somberly recalled, and never repeated. The camps are a stark example of how the United States once failed in its moral obligation to combat all forms of bigotry and persecution. But willingness to highlight our country's wrongdoing was the first step towards reclaiming our national honor. For generations born after the war, the camps may seem like relics, Even as politicians today stoke ethnic and religious fears, we ignore the camps and their reminder of the power of xenophobia and ignorance. Why do we ignore the toxic potential of those terrible forces, even when we see them commingling the same way today? Is it because we believe any analogies to the events of World War II are unhelpful hyperbole, a type of Godwin's law by extension, Or is it because executive branch surrogates cited the camps not as a failure of American and constitutional values, but as a precedent for travel bans? Consider those words from Congress, race prejudice, war hysteria, a failure of political leadership. Consider also the official accounting of the consequences, the tremendous human cost, and the loss of liberty. Today, we run the risk of falling prey to a comparable confluence of dangerous effects. What will the consequences be this time? We disregard recent history at our own peril. The likelihood of a constitutional and human rights calamity is too great to be ignored. Turning away refugees and unmatched numbers of undocumented immigrants is not just foolhardy and destructive policy. It threatens to alter our fundamental notions of what it means to be an American. Even our most cherished values are at risk. We should stand firmly against any American movement centered on the deprivation of liberty or restriction of rights without meaningful due process. The United States is not defined by its borders. We have always pushed beyond them. We are too ambitious to be contained by any kind of wall. The United States, at its best, does not withdraw into itself, but stretches out. It reaches for the highest achievements, extends a welcome to the farthest corners of the world, and pushes for new discoveries from deep seas to outer space. As Americans, we should champion our values of basic equality and provide compassion to those on our shores fleeing all forms of tyranny. We are legally and morally obligated to protect the fundamental human rights of all individuals within our borders and to provide everyone at least the minimal constitutional rights of an impartial legal system. As someone who spent my entire public service career with the U.S. Department of Justice, posted at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia, and more recently the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, I continue to worry day and night about vulnerabilities and weaknesses in our global security and counterterrorism architecture. Our task now is to fulfill our obligations, promote our values, and protect our homeland even in today's extraordinarily complex and ever-evolving threat environment. We understand that isolationism and fixation on the state of our borders is short-sighted, but absent a clearly articulated policy, academics, government executives, and the thought leadership community should help develop plans for a productive way forward. These same groups should also encourage widespread civil participation in the process because citizens from all walks of life deserve a say in our nation's progress. Valuable ideas, of course, are not limited to intellectuals, academics, and thought leaders. But at the highest levels, we must advocate for policies based on sound reasoning and subject matter expertise. We have to to rethink the prevailing wisdom about how best to safeguard the homeland and US assets. The safety of our borders is not determined by US citizens and residents alone. We need thoughtful, honest dialogue with our regional neighbors and partners about how to control migration patterns and understand the factors that lead to unusual spikes. From a defensive perspective, the challenge is not to build ultimately unsustainable border walls, but to invest in improved border security and develop innovative solutions for ensuring our safety. We should support enhanced biometric processing measures, as well as simplified pathways to citizenship. And we have to move past the conception of homeland security as pertaining strictly to our physical territory. Thanks to a globalized economy and the development of the Internet, it is possible to commit grievous acts of terrorism against the United States without ever setting foot in the country. Even if we were to raise a wall tall enough to keep out everyone we felt would pose a threat, we would still be vulnerable to attacks against the systems that power our financial institutions, our airplanes, even our electrical grid, as well as the threats the United States faces from its ongoing internal emergencies. Not all of the United States' most pressing threats come from the outside. In fact, many elements of everyday life within the United States among U.S. citizens are far more deadly than any foreign attack. Gun violence is frequently treated as an element of homicides, but approximately two-thirds of all gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Many other shootings are related to domestic violence incidents and gross negligence. Toddlers have shot themselves or others at a rate of approximately one per week since 2015. Over 50,000 of our fellow citizens died of drug overdoses in 2016, the highest number ever recorded. That number is greater than the number of homicides and deaths as a result of automobile crashes. In 2015, American life expectancy declined for the first time since 1993. While the causes of death increase across the board, among middle-aged white Americans with only a high school education, Mortality rose chiefly due to drug overdoses, liver disease, cirrhosis and suicide, a cluster of conditions sometimes called diseases of despair. It is no coincidence this epidemic is most severe in areas that have been hard hit by increased workforce automation, causing widespread job losses and devastating damage to rural communities. A 2015 study from Ball State University estimated nearly 88% of recent job losses in manufacturing were due to technical and productivity improvements. The trend is poised to expand quickly to other businesses that rely on repetitive, lower-skilled jobs, such as long-haul trucking and the service industry, both of which are staples of rural regions. The United States could be hollowed out from the center as more populations are left to language without stable employment. Where economic mobility declines and opportunities are lost, misery flourishes. The suffering in these areas cannot be overstated and these populations need help. Millions of Americans are already at risk of falling victim to internal tragedies. Their ills will not be eased by building walls or digging moats or deporting migrants. We should put effort into uplifting these disadvantaged fellow citizens and residents as a homeland security priority because the combination of economic anguish and personal hopelessness is a chief influence not only for suicide, but violent extremism. We often focus on international terrorism, but we should never forget that domestic terrorism remains an especially serious threat. Witness the horrific Oklahoma City bombing of 1995, and the terror caused by Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber from 1978 to 1995. As such, all of us should be alarmed by the recent decision to target U.S. government counter-extremism programs only towards Islamic extremism. What of violent extremist and separatist movements causing death, destruction, and despair across the globe that do not involve jihadist perpetrators, including organizations that are actively engaged in acts of terrorism in Colombia, Peru, Sri Lanka, and Burma, to name but a few. In addition, from 2006 to 2015, white supremacists committed approximately 70% of all killings linked to domestic terrorism in the United States. By contrast, according to the Libertarian Cato Institute, Citizens from the six Muslim-majority countries named in the most recent temporary travel ban have not committed a single terrorist act on U.S. soil between 1975 and the end of 2015. Moreover, the travel ban, whether or not ultimately allowed by the federal courts to take effect, is dangerously counterproductive in that it serves as a powerful recruiting tool by the self-proclaimed Islamic State, The various factions of Al Qaeda, including Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and Al Qaeda's Somali affiliate Al Shabaab, by fueling their argument that the West in general and the United States in particular are hostile towards Muslims. This is especially troubling given that the global battle against these transnational terrorist organizations requires the United States to partner with its Muslim allies and policies that temporarily suspend refugee emissions and that drastically reduce the total number of refugees that the United States, after years of careful vetting, will accept do not make our country more secure. The current focus on violence committed by other groups, such as religious or racial minorities, threatens to eclipse the very real threat from domestic extremists. It also lends credence to insidious stereotypes and tacit acceptance of crimes against those minorities. Once we accept that those people are naturally more violent, menacing, or inherently different from us in dangerous ways, we may be less inclined to protect them, or worse, be less able to view them as fellow citizens, all while making us more likely to overlook or excuse criminal behaviors from those who look like us. Any effective homeland security strategy must anticipate and mitigate both threats from radical foreign actors and the even more likely possibility of violence committed by fellow American citizens. The potential for terror already exists within our own borders, in our own neighborhoods. We should employ counter extremist programs that incorporate a solid understanding of the radicalization cycle including studying group dynamics and social bonds. And we must focus on provocations to radicalization from instigators across social, economic, political, and religious spectrums. We should avoid condemning entire groups. Such rhetoric makes radicalization more likely, not less. One of the most powerful things we can do for our own defense is to live like neighbors instead of adversaries. This is not about government-driven initiatives, but human ones. It means making a serious effort to improve the integration of marginalized populations into their surrounding environments. Instead of offering inflammatory words, we can work to build trust between new residents and their communities. We should push back against rhetoric that implies our neighbors are not wanted, or that those who come to the United States to escape unfathomable suffering are somehow undeserving of America's full promise. We can also empower local groups to reach out to disaffected, lonely, or isolated individuals who might feel left behind and prone to radical action. On the state and federal level, we can identify the areas with the greatest need and allocate appropriate resources to improve overall well-being. We should try to secure reliable funding sources independent of the government but we must not hesitate to argue for assistance from taxpayer-funded agencies when necessary because the health and safety of our communities is certainly a homeland security concern. Outside the United States, we can reiterate the need for strong relationships and seek cooperative solutions with our allies and in some situations, even our adversaries to combat violent extremism we can point to centuries of foreign policy experience that demonstrates the importance of fruitful international partnerships. Wherever feasible, we should try to work with other nations who share our strategic objectives. We should foster business and relationships abroad and increase public awareness at home about the benefits of healthy foreign trade and investment. For approximately 1% of the federal budget, the United States can continue to provide vital economic and development assistance to our foreign partners, especially weak and fragile states, to support critical human rights and humanitarian efforts. If America first is a zero-sum game, then we are not helping other countries to be more prosperous or secure, which would serve to encourage their respective citizens to remain at home rather than to seek refuge and opportunities elsewhere. We should try to exemplify American values by supporting the fight for liberty and the rule of law wherever they are challenged and finding safe haven for those fleeing tyranny, war, and terrorism. This, there is an obvious complication to these goals. How do we engage our neighbors, our fellow citizens, and the wider world when the prevailing trend among our fellow Americans appears to be moving in the other direction. It is not my place to prescribe anyone's personal choices. Instead, I will offer some overly simplistic advice. Do it regardless. The best, most effective solution is no less correct for being unpopular. After all, the United States is famous not only for its diversity, diversity of people, of ideas, and of initiatives, it is likewise admired for its willingness to take on unpopular causes when doing so is righteous. America's collaborative spirit should not be dampened by some immediate challenges, obstacles which may turn out to be a short-term trend. The United States is equally renowned for its love of individuality and spirited dissent, and it can never be un-American to treat others with basic decency and respect. Above all, we can be an America that does not shrink from any part of the world, but embraces it, and we can do so in a way that is compassionate to the least fortunate and reasonable to those heroically protecting the homeland. Our legal and moral obligations as citizens of this great nation demand it. Thank you.